Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft, Volume 4. As the road turned downward toward the plain, Zamakona felt a kind of uneasiness and sense of evil. He did not like the beast he rode, or the world that could provide such a beast, and he did not like the atmosphere that brooded over the distant city of Soth. When the cavalcade began to pass occasional farms, the Spaniard noticed the forms that worked in the fields, and he did not like their motions and proportions, or the mutilations he saw in most of them. Moreover, he did not like the way that some of these forms were herded in corrals, or the way they grazed on the heavy verdure. Gilhathayan indicated that these beings were members of the slave class, and that their acts were controlled by the master of the farm who gave them hypnotic impressions in the morning of all that they were to do during the day. As semi-conscious machines, their industrial efficiency was nearly perfect. Those in the corrals were inferior specimens, classified merely as livestock. Upon reaching the plain, Zamakona saw the larger farms and noticed the almost human work performed by the repulsive horned Gya-Yoth. He likewise observed the more manlike shapes that toiled along the furrows and felt a curious fright and disgust toward certain of them whose motions were more mechanical than those of the rest. These, Gil Hathayan explained, were what men call the Yimbahai organisms which had died but which had been mechanically reanimated for industrial purposes by means of atomic energy and thought power. The slave class did not share the immortality of the freemen of Soth, so that with time the number of Yimbahai had become very large. They were dog-like and faithful, but not so readily amenable to thought commands as were living slaves. Those which most repelled Zamakona were those whose mutilations were greatest, for some were wholly headless, while others had suffered singular and seemingly capricious subtractions, distortions, transpositions, and graftings in various places. The Spaniard could not account for this condition, but Gil Hathayan made it clear that these were slaves who had been used for the amusement of the people in some of the vast arenas. For the men of Soth were connoisseurs of delicate sensation and required a constant supply of fresh and novel stimuli for their jaded impulses. Zamacona, though by no means squeamish, was not favorably impressed by what he saw and heard. Approached more closely, the vast metropolis became dimly horrible in its monstrous extent and in human height. Gil Hathayan explained that the upper parts of the great towers were no longer used and that many had been taken down to avoid the bother of maintenance. The plain around the original urban area was covered with newer and smaller dwellings, which in many cases were preferred to the ancient towers. From the whole mass of gold and stone, a monotonous roar of activity drowned outward over the plain, while cavalcades and streams of wagons were constantly entering and leaving over the great gold or stone-paved roads. Several times, Gil Hathayan paused to show Zamakona some particular object of interest, especially the temples of Yig, Tulu, Nug, Yeb, and the not-to-be-named one, which lie in the road in infrequent intervals, each in its embowering grove according to the custom of Kinyan. These temples, unlike those of the deserted plain beyond the mountains, were still in active use. 
There were large parties of mounted worshippers coming and going in constant streams. Gil Hathayan took Zamacona into each of them, and the Spaniard watched the subtle, orgiastic rites with fascination and repulsion. The ceremonies of Nug and Yeb sickened him especially, so much indeed that he refrained from describing them in his manuscript. One squat, black temple of Sathagua was encountered, but it had been turned into a shrine of Shub Nigarath, the all-mother and wife of the not-to-be-named one. This deity was a kind of sophisticated Astarte, and her worship struck the pious Catholic as supremely obnoxious. What he liked least of all were the emotional sounds emitted by the celebrants, jarring sounds in a race that had ceased to use vocal speech for ordinary purposes. Close to the compact outskirts of Soth, and well within the shadow of its terrifying powers, Gil Hathayan pointed out a monstrous circular building before which enormous crowds were lined up. This, he indicated, was one of the many amphitheaters where curious sports and sensations were provided for the weary people of Kinyan. He was about to pause and usher Zamacona inside the vast curved facade when the Spaniard, recalling the mutilated forms he had seen in the fields, violently demurred. This was the first of those friendly clashes of taste which were to convince the people of Soth that their guest followed strange and narrow standards. Soth itself was a network of strange and ancient streets, and despite a growing sense of horror and alienage, Samakona was enthralled by its intimations of mystery and cosmic wonder. The dizzy giganticism of its overawing towers, the monstrous surge of teeming life through its ornate avenues, the curious carvings on its doorways and windows, the odd vistas glimpsed from balustrated plazas and tiers of titan terraces, and the enveloping gray haze which seemed to press down on the gorge-like streets in low-ceiling fashion. All these combined to produce such a sense of adventurous expectancy as he had never known before. He was taken at once to a council of executives which held forth in a gold and copper palace behind a gardened and fountain park and was for some time subjected to close, friendly questioning in a vaulted hall frescoed with vertiginous arabesques. Much was expected of him, he could see, in the way of historical information about the outside earth, but in return, all the mysteries of Kinyan would be unveiled to him. The one great drawback was the inexorable ruling that he might never return to the world of sun and stars, and Spain, which was his. A daily program was laid down for the visitor, with time apportioned judiciously among several kinds of activities. There were to be conversations with persons of learning in various places, and lessons in many branches of Sothic lore. Liberal periods of research were allowed for, and all the libraries of Kenyon, both secular and sacred, were to be thrown open to him as soon as he might master the written languages. Rites and spectacles were to be attended, except when he might especially object, and much time would be left for the enlightened pleasure-seeking and emotional titillation which formed the goal and nucleus of daily life there. A house in the suburbs or an apartment in the city would be assigned to him, and he would be initiated into one of the large affection groups, including many noble women of the most extreme and art-enhanced beauty, which in latter-day Kenyan took the place of family units.
Several horned Yah-Yoth would be provided for his transportation and errand running, and ten living slaves of intact body would serve to conduct his establishment and protect him from thieves and sadists and religious orgiasts on public highways. There were many mechanical devices which he must learn to use, but Gil Hathayan would instruct him immediately regarding the principal ones. Upon his choosing an apartment in preference to a suburban villa, Zamakona was dismissed by the executives with great courtesy and ceremony, and was led through several gorgeous streets to a cliff-like carven structure of some seventy or eighty floors. Preparations for his arrival had already been instituted, and in a spacious ground-floor suite of vaulted rooms, slaves were busy adjusting hangings and furniture. There were lacquered and inlaid tabarets, velvet and silk reclining corners and squatting cushions, and infinite rows of teakwood and ebony pigeonholes with metal cylinders containing some of the manuscripts he was soon to read, standard classics which all urban apartments possessed. Desks with great stacks of membrane paper and pots of prevailing green pigment were in every room, each with graded sets of pigment brushes and other odd bits of stationery. Mechanical writing devices stood on ornate golden tripods, while over all was shed a brilliant blue light from energy globes set in the ceiling. There were windows, but at this shadowy ground level they were of scant illuminating value. In some of the rooms were elaborate baths, while the kitchen was a maze of technical contrivances. Supplies were brought, Zamakona was told, through the network of underground passages which lay beneath Soth, and which had once accommodated curious mechanical transports. There was a stable on the underground level for the beasts, and Zamakona would presently be shown how to find the nearest runway to the street. Before his inspection was finished, the permanent staff of slaves arrived and were introduced, and shortly afterwards there came some half-dozen free men and noble women of his future affection group, who were to be his companions for several days, contributing what they could to his instruction and amusement. Upon their departure, another party would take their place, and so onward in rotation through a group of about 50 members. Chapter 6 Thus was Pamphilo de Zamacona y Nunez absorbed for four years into the life of the sinister city of Sath in the blue-litten netherworld of Kenyon. All that he learned and saw and did is clearly not told in his manuscript, for a pious reticence overcame him when he began to write in his native Spanish tongue, and he dared not set down everything. Much he consistently viewed with repulsion, and many things he steadfastly refrained from seeing or doing or eating. For other things, he atoned by frequent countings of the beads of his rosary. He explored the entire world of Kenyon, including the deserted machine cities of the middle period on the gorse-grown plain of Nith, and even made one descent into the red-litten world of Yoth to see the Cyclopean ruins there. He witnessed prodigies of craft and machinery which left him breathless, and beheld human metamorphoses, dematerializations, rematerializations, and reanimations which made him cross himself again and again. His very capacity for astonishment 
was blunted by the plethora of new marvels which every day brought him. But the longer he stayed, the more he wished to leave, for the inner life of Kenyon was based on impulses very plainly outside his radius. As he progressed in historical knowledge, he understood more, but understanding only heightened his distaste. He felt that the people of South were a lost and dangerous race, more dangerous to themselves than they knew, and their growing frenzy of monotony, warfare, and novelty quest was leading them rapidly toward a precipice of disintegration and utter horror. His own visit, he could see, had accelerated their unrest, not only by introducing fears of outside invasion, but by exciting in many a wish to sally forth and taste the diverse external world he described. As time progressed, he noticed an increasing tendency of the people to resort to dematerialization as an amusement, so that the apartments and amphitheaters of Soth became a veritable witch's Sabbath of transmutations, age adjustments, death experiments, and projections. With a growth of boredom and restlessness, he saw cruelty and subtlety and revolt were growing apace. There was more and more cosmic abnormality, more and more curious sadism, more and more ignorance and superstition, and more and more desire to escape out of physical life into a half-spectral state of electronic dispersal. All his efforts to leave, however, came to nothing. Persuasion was useless, as repeated trials proved, though the mature disillusion of the upper classes at first prevented them from resenting their guests' open wish for departure. In the year which he reckoned as 1543, Zamacona made an actual attempt to escape through the tunnel by which he had entered Kinyan, but after a weary journey across the deserted plain, he encountered forces in the dark passage which discouraged him from future attempts in that direction. As a means of sustaining hope and keeping the image of home in mind, he began about this time to make rough drafts of the manuscript relating his adventures, delighting in the loved old Spanish words and the familiar letters of the Roman alphabet. Somehow he fancied he might get the manuscript to the outer world, and to make it convincing to his fellows, he resolved to enclose it in one of the two-loom metal cylinders used for sacred archives. That alien magnetic substance could not but support the incredible story he had to tell. But even as he planned, he had little real hope of ever establishing contact with the Earth's surface. Every known gate he knew was guarded by persons or forces that it were better not to oppose. His attempted escape had not helped matters, for he could now see a growing hostility to the outer world he represented. He hoped that no other European would find his way in, for it was possible that later comers might not fare as well as he had. He himself had been a cherished fountain of data, and as such had enjoyed a privileged status. Others, deemed less necessary, might receive rather different treatment. He even wondered what would happen to him when the sages of Soth considered him drained dry of fresh facts, and in self-defense began to be more gradual in his talks on earth lore, conveying whenever he could the impression of vast knowledge held in reserve. One other thing which endangered Zamakona's status in Soth was his persistent curiosity regarding the ultimate abyss of Nakai beneath the red-litten Yoth 
whose existence the dominant religious cults of Kenyan were more and more inclined to deny. When exploring Yoth, he had vainly tried to find the blocked-up entrance, and later on he experimented in the arts of dematerialization and projection, hoping he might thereby be able to throw his consciousness downward into the gulfs which his physical eyes could not discover. Though never becoming truly proficient in these processes, he did manage to achieve a series of monstrous and portentous dreams which he believed included some elements of actual projection into Nakai, dreams which greatly shocked and perturbed the leaders of Yig and Tulu worship when he related them, and which he was advised by friends to conceal rather than to exploit. In time, those dreams became very frequent and maddening, containing things which he dared not record in his main manuscript, but of which he prepared a special record for the benefit of certain learned men in Soth. It may have been unfortunate, or it may have been more mercifully fortunate, that Zamakona practiced so many reticences and reserved so many themes and descriptions for the subsidiary manuscripts. The main document leaves one to guess much about the detailed manners, customs, thoughts, language, and history of Kinyan, as well as to form any adequate picture of the visual aspect and daily life of Soth. One is left puzzled, too, about the real motivations of the people, their strange passivity and craven unwarlikeness, and their almost cringing fear of the outer world despite their possession of atomic and dematerializing powers which would have made them unconquerable had they taken the trouble to organize armies in the old days. It is evident that Kinyan was far along in his decadence, reacting with mixed apathy and hysteria against the standardized and timetabled life of stultifying regularity which machinery had brought it during its middle period. Even the grotesque and repulsive customs and modes of thought and feeling can be traced to this source. For in his historical research, Zamakona found evidence of bygone eras in which Kinyan had held ideas much like those of the classic and Renaissance outer world, and had possessed a national character and art full of what Europeans regard as dignity, kindness, and nobility. The more Zamakona studied these things, the more apprehensive about the future he became, because he saw that the omnipresent moral and intellectual disintegration was a tremendously deep-seated and ominously accelerating movement. Even during his stay, the signs of decay multiplied. Rationalism degenerated more and more into fanatical and orgiistic superstition, centering in the lavish adoration of the magnetic Tulu metal. And tolerance steadily dissolved into a series of frenzied hatreds, especially toward the outer world of which the scholars were learning so much from him. At times, he almost feared that the people might someday lose their age-long apathy and brokenness and turn like desperate rats against the unknown lands above them, sweeping all before them by virtue of their singular and still-remembered scientific powers. But for the present, they fought their boredom and sense of emptiness in other ways, multiplying their hideous emotional outlets and increasing the mad grotesqueness and abnormality of their diversions. The arenas of Soth must have been accursed and unthinkable places. Zamakona never went near them. And what they would be in another century, or even another decade, he dared not think. The pious Spaniard crossed himself and counted his beads more often than usual in those days. In the year 1545, as he reckoned it, 
Zamakona began what might well be accepted as his final series of attempts to leave Kenyon. His fresh opportunity came from an unexpected source, a female of his affection group who conceived for him a curious individual infatuation based on some hereditary memory of the days of monogamous wedlock in Saf. Over this female, a noble woman of moderate beauty and of at least average intelligence, named Tla Yub, Zabakona acquired the most extraordinary influence, finally inducing her to help him in an escape, under the promise that he would let her accompany him. Chance proved a great factor in the course of events, for Tla Yub came of a primordial family of gate lords who had retained oral traditions of at least one passage to the outer world, which the mass of people had forgotten even at the time of the great closing a passage to a mound on the level plains of earth which had, in consequence, never been sealed up or guarded. She explained that the primordial gate lords were not guards or sentries, but merely ceremonial and economic proprietors, half-feudal and baronial in status, of an era preceding the severance of surface relations. Her own family had been so reduced at the time of the closing that their gate had been wholly overlooked, and they had ever afterwards preserved the secret of its existence as a sort of hereditary secret, a source of pride and of a sense of reserved power to offset the feeling of vanished wealth and influence which so constantly irritated them. Zamakona, now working feverishly to get his manuscript into final form in case anything should happen to him, decided to take with him on his outward journey only five beast loads of unalloyed gold in the form of the small ingots used for minor decorations, enough, he calculated, to make him a personage of unlimited power in his own world. He had become somewhat hardened to the side of the monstrous Gyayoth during his four years of residence in Soth, hence did not shrink from using the creatures. Yet he resolved to kill and bury them and cache the gold as soon as he reached the outer world, since he knew that even a glimpse of one of the things would drive any ordinary Indian mad. Later, he could arrange for a suitable expedition to transport the treasure to Mexico. Tla Yub he would perhaps allow to share his fortunes, for she was by no means unattractive, though possibly he would arrange for her to sojourn amongst the Plains Indians, since he was not over-anxious to preserve links with the manner of life in South. For a wife, of course, he would choose a lady of Spain, or at worst, an Indian princess of normal outer-world descent and a regular and approved past. But for the present, Tlayub must be used as a guide. The manuscript he would carry on his own person, encased in a book cylinder of the sacred and magnetic Tulu metal. The expedition itself is described in the addendum to Zamakona's manuscript, written later and in a hand showing signs of nervous strain. It set out amidst the most careful precautions, choosing a rest period and proceeding as far as possible along the faintly lighted passages beneath the city. Zamakona and Talayub, disguised in slave garments, bearing provision knapsacks and leading the five laden beasts on foot, were readily taken for commonplace workers, and they clung as long as possible to the subterranean way using a long and little frequented branch which had formerly conducted the mechanical transports to the now ruined suburb of Lothar. Amidst the ruins of Lothar, 
they came to the surface. Thereafter, passing as rapidly as possible over the deserted blue-litten plain of Nith toward the Gruryan range of low hills. There amidst the tangled underbrush, Tilayub found the long-disused and half-fabulous entrance to the forgotten tunnel, a thing she had seen but once eons before, in the past when her father had taken her thither to show her this monument to their family pride. It was hard work getting the laden Gyayoth to scrape through the obstructing vines and briars, and one of them displayed a rebelliousness destined to bear dire consequences. Bolting away from the party and loping back towards Soth on its detestable paths, golden burden and all. It was nightmare work, burrowing by the light of blue-ray torches upward, downward, forward, and upward again through a dank, choked tunnel that no foot had trodden since ages before the sinking of Atlantis. And at one point, Talayub had to practice the fearsome art of dematerialization on herself, Zamakona, and the laden beasts in order to pass a point wholly clogged by shifting earth strata. It was a terrible experience for Zamakona, for although he had often witnessed dematerialization in others, and even practiced it himself to the extent of dream projection, he had never been fully subjected to it before. But Tilayub was skilled in the arts of Kinyan and accomplished the double metamorphosis in perfect safety. Thereafter, they resumed the hideous burrowing through stalactited crypts of horror where monstrous carvings leered at every turn alternately camping and advancing for a period which Zamakona reckoned as about three days, but which was probably less. At last they came to a very narrow place, where the natural or only slightly hewn cave walls gave place to walls of wholly artificial masonry, carved into terrible bas-reliefs. These walls, after about a mile of steep ascent, ended with a pair of vast niches, one on each side, in which Monstrous niter-encrusted images of Yig and Tulu squatted, glaring at each other across the passage as they had glared since the earliest youth of the human world. At this point, the passage opened into a prodigious vaulted and circular chamber of human construction, wholly covered with horrible carvings and revealing at the farther end an arched passageway with the foot of a flight of steps. Talai Yub knew from family tales that this must be very near the Earth's surface, but she could not tell just how near. Here the party camped for what they meant to be their last rest period in the subterraneous world. Must have been hours later that the clank of metal and the padding of beast feet awakened Zamakona and Talai Yub. A bluish glare was spreading from the narrow passage between the images of Yig and Tulu, and in an instant the truth was obvious. An alarm had been given at Soth, as was later revealed by the returning Gyayoth, which had rebelled at the briar-choked tunnel entrance, and a swift party of pursuers had come to arrest the fugitives. Resistance was clearly futile, and none was offered. The party of twelve beast riders proved studiously polite, and the return commenced almost without a word or thought message on either side. It was an ominous and depressing journey, and the ordeal of dematerialization and rematerialization at the choked place was all the more terrible because of the lack of that hope and expectancy which had palliated the process on the outward trip. 
Zamacona heard his captors discussing the imminent clearing of this choked place by intensive radiation, since henceforthward sentries must be maintained at the hitherto unknown outer portal. It would not do to let outsiders get within the passage, for then any who might escape without due treatment would have a hint of the vastness of the inner world and would perhaps be curious enough to return in greater strength. As with the other passages since Zamacona's coming, sentries must be stationed all along, as far as the very outermost gate, sentries drawn from amongst all the slaves, the dead alive Yimbahai, or the class of discredited freemen. With the overrunning of the American plains by thousands of Europeans, as the Spaniard had predicted, every passage was a potential source of danger, and must be rigorously guarded until the technologists of South could spare the energy to prepare an ultimate and entrance-hiding obliteration, as they had done for many passages in earlier and more vigorous times. Zamacona and Tlaib were tried before the Supreme Tribunal in the Gold and Copper Palace behind the Gardened and Fountain and Park, and the Spaniard was given his liberty because of the vital outer-world information he still had to impart. He was told to return to his apartment and to his affection group, taking up his life as before, and continuing to meet deputations of scholars according to the latest schedule he had been following. No restrictions would be imposed upon him so long as he might remain peaceably in Kenyon, but it was intimated that such leniency would not be repeated after another attempt at escape. Zamacona had felt there was an element of irony in the parting words of the chief, an assurance that all his Gyayoth, including the one which had rebelled, would be returned to him. The faith of Tlayab was less happy. There being no object in retaining her and her ancient Sothic lineage giving her act a greater aspect of treason than Zamacona's had possessed, she was ordered to be delivered to the curious diversions of the amphitheater. And afterwards, in a somewhat mutilated and half-dematerialized form, to be given the functions of a Yimbahai, an animated corpse slave, and stationed among the sentries guarding the passage whose existence she had betrayed. Zamacona soon heard, not without many pangs of regret, that he could scarcely have anticipated that poor Tlayub had emerged from the arena in a headless and otherwise incomplete state and had been set as an outermost guard upon the mound in which the passage had been found to terminate. She was, he was told, a night sentinel, whose automatic duty was to warn off all comers with a torch, sending down reports to a small garrison of twelve dead slave Yimbahai and six living, but partly dematerialized freemen in the vaulted circular chamber if the approachers did not heed her warning. She worked, he was told, in conjunction with a day sentinel, a living free man who chose this post in preference to other forms of discipline for other offenses against the state. Zamacona, of course, had long known that most of the chief gate sentries were such discredited free men. It was now made plain to him, though indirectly, that his own penalty for another escape attempt would be service as a gate sentry, but in the form of a dead-alive Yimbahai slave and after amphitheater treatment, even more picturesque than that which Tilayub was reported to have undergone. It was intimated that he, or parts of him, would be reanimated to guard some inner section of the passage, within sight of others where his 
abridged person might serve as a permanent symbol of the rewards of treason. But his informants always added it was, of course, inconceivable that he would ever court such a fate. So long as he remained peaceably in Kenyon, he would continue to be a free, privileged, and respected personage. Yet in the end, Pamphilo de Zamacona did court the fate so direfully hinted to him. True, he did not really expect to encounter it, but the nervous latter part of his manuscript makes it clear he was prepared to face this possibility. What gave him a final hope of a scatheless escape from Kinyon was his growing mastery of the art of dematerialization. Having studied it for years and having learned still more from the two instances in which he had been subjected to it, he now felt increasingly able to use it independently and effectively. The manuscript records several notable experiments in this art, minor successes accomplished in his apartment, and reflects Zamacona's hope that he might soon be able to assume the spectral form in full, attaining complete invisibility and preserving that condition as long as he wished. Once he reached this stage, he argued, the outward way lay open to him. Of course, he could not bear away any gold, but mere escape was enough. He would, though, dematerialize and carry with him his manuscript in the Tulu metal cylinder, even though it would cost additional effort, for this record and proof must reach the outer world at all hazards. He now knew the passage to follow, and if he could thread it in an atom-scattered state, he did not see how any person or force could detect or stop him. The only trouble would be if he failed to maintain his spectral condition at all times, That was the one ever-present peril, as he had learned from his experiments. But must one not always risk death and worse in a life of adventure? Zamacona was a gentleman of old Spain, of the blood that faced the unknown and carved out half the civilization of the New World. For many nights after his ultimate resolution, Zamacona prayed to St. Pamphilus and other guardian saints and counted the beads of his rosary. The last entry in the manuscript, which toward the end took the form of a diary more and more, was merely a single sentence. Es más tarde de lo que pensaba tengo que marcarme. It is later than I thought. I must go. After that, only silence and conjecture, and such evidence as the presence of the manuscript itself, and what that manuscript could lead to and might provide.